I invite you to open up your Bibles with me now to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Pretty soon your Bible may just open right to it because we started into it last week and it's the longest book of the Bible, 52 chapters. We're going to be here a while, but we've already made it up to chapter 2. We learned last week that Jeremiah was not a bullfrog, but a prophet of the Lord in the southern kingdom of Judah for the last 40 years before Judah was sent into exile. Last week we learned about Jeremiah's inescapable call to unflinching prophetic ministry, faithfully speaking God's words, patiently waiting for God's words to be fulfilled for good or ill, and resolutely standing with God's words no matter how unpopular he became. Today in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we begin to hear more of Jeremiah's message of judgment for the nation of Judah. Before I read any of this chapter to you, I have to warn you, it's not pretty. The language here is actually very jolting. It's scorching, really, when you read it. There are parts of the Bible where the language is sweet and beautiful and heartening. But there are other parts of the Bible where the language has to be, because of its essential message, more stunning, more hard-hitting, more painful to read, more harrowing, harder to hear, harder to listen to. And a lot of the words of Jeremiah are like that, including this section. Really, chapters 2 through 6. Jeremiah can be like a broken record stuck on a really mad and sad song. You ever turn on the radio and it's that song you don't like? And then you turn on the radio again and it's that same song? And eventually you think, well, maybe I'm supposed to get a message from that. Well, that's Jeremiah. Remember, it's a prophecy of a tragedy. In this chapter, there are a lot of strong accusations leveled at the people of Judah, and he really presses them home. The prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament often had to act as the prosecuting attorneys of the covenant. Let me say that again. The prophets of the, of the Lord in the Old Testament often had to act as the prosecuting attorneys of the covenant. Often the prophets were like lawyers. Have you ever spent any time in a courtroom? I've spent a little time there, not very much, thankfully. Mostly supporting somebody else who had to be there for some court case or another. But I have watched a lot of Perry Mason. We watched one last night. And I've watched some Matlock, so I, I am a little bit of an expert here on the court cases. I've watched some Law and Order. And as I love murder mysteries, I have read about thousands of court cases. What is the scariest seat in the courtroom? Is it the judge's seat? No. Though I hope they feel a kind of pressure having to give a judgment. It's the defendant, right? In a criminal case, at least. The person who is being tried. 
That person, even if they're innocent, are the ones who are squirming the most. Unless they're Jesus. In his court case, he squirms the least, right? And if they are guilty, oh, are they squirming in their seat. Well, the prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament were often called upon to be the prosecuting attorneys for the Lord against the people of Israel, the people of Judah, as the defendants. Often, the prophecies of the prophets were less about foretelling what was going to happen someday in the far future, and more about forthtelling, bringing charges against the nation for their disobedience to the covenant that the Lord had made with them in the past. And that's the focus of Jeremiah chapter 2. There's no date on it, unlike last week's prophecy, so we don't really know when it was originally delivered. But most scholars assume that it was early on in Jeremiah's ministry. It's actually more like a sampler. It's more like a mixtape of Jeremiah's greatest hits as a prosecuting attorney pointing out the awfulness of Judah's sin. And I'm sure that listening to it was painful for the defendants. Because the picture that Yahweh paints through Jeremiah is not pretty. And it would be easy, I think, to distance ourselves from it when we read it. To shake our heads at those foolish Israelites. What were they thinking? Or to say, go get them, Jeremiah. Yeah, you tell them. But I believe one of the major reasons why these words are in our Bibles is to help us to see ourselves and our sin. Their sins give us insight into our sins. And what God says about their sin gives us insight into how God thinks about our sin. So let us listen in to Jeremiah, the prosecuting attorney, bringing some charges against Judah. He begins, strangely enough, with describing a honeymoon. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them declares the Lord. Those are the nicest words that you're going to hear from Jeremiah today. I kind of wish we could just stop right there. I remember how good it was. Jeremiah was hit with the word of the Lord again. Bam! The word of the Lord came to me. And Yahweh told him to walk to Jerusalem. Remember, that's about an hour's walk from Anathoth. It's kind of like here to Kylertown. Okay, set off now, go to Kylertown and deliver these words. I remember our honeymoon. Now the Lord uses this metaphor of the covenant of marriage again and again in the Bible, both Testaments. The Lord as husband and the people of God as bride, united in a covenant of love. And it was so full of promise at first, holy 
First fruits, that's the best. Idyllic, devotion, love, loyalty. Now, yes, there were problems in this marriage from the first. They struggled some in the wilderness, but there were no other parties in the picture. No other gods. It was just Israel and Yahweh on their honeymoon. And the Lord was completely faithful to his bride. He provided for his bride. He protected his bride. When the enemies came, he beat them. He was a great husband, declares the Lord. Mic drop. That's the way it was. Nobody can argue. So what happened? What happened? How did they get here? Remember last week that boiling pot that Jeremiah saw? Boiling away, tilting towards Jerusalem. There was a scalding judgment going to come down from the north. Why? Because Judah had been unfaithful to the covenant. How did they get here? How did they get to this place? Look at verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? That they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They went from holy to worthless. Why? How? What did I do wrong? Verse 6. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? They should have. Why didn't they call me? I've taken care of them. I would take care of them still. Verse 7, I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. It wasn't just the people, it was the leaders. Verse 8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The teachers of the law, they didn't know me. The leaders, the shepherds of Israel, rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. Following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. That's where we get our title for today. Verse 9 there. I bring charges against you. And if your kids and your grandkids keep it up, I'll bring charges against them too. See how, how worse this is because they've been so close? Because they'd had that honeymoon? This court case is kind of like a divorce case. And the Lord is the offended spouse suing for divorce. And here's the scary thing. He is also the judge. 
and he's the one speaking through the prosecuting attorney. You notice there's almost no Jeremiah here. Jeremiah is just reporting. This is just Yahweh speaking through Jeremiah. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. What are the charges? Look at verse 10. Cross over to the coast of Katim and look. That's Cyprus in the west. Send a Kedar. That's a desert in the east. And observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. I have three points to make this morning from this chapter. And they're all about what sin is like just from listening to the Lord talk about the sin of Judah. Here's point number one. Sin is shocking. If you're taking notes, that's point number one of three this morning. Sin is shocking. Do you hear how astounded the Lord sounds about this? Check from east to west. Have you ever heard anything like this before? It's unheard of. It's unparalleled. Has a nation ever changed its gods? What's the answer to that one? Only if they're made to. Only if they're made to. If somebody came in and conquered you, then you might switch over to their gods because you had to. Though you probably snuck around with your gods when nobody was watching. But Judah has decided to change its real God who was perfectly faithful to false gods that aren't even real. My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. How shocking is that? He says, what was, what was my sin? How had I failed you? He had not. And yet they exchanged him for worthless idols. I'd like to turn in this glorious God and take one of those defective models, please. What? Verse 12. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. The heavens here are like the spectators in the courtroom. They don't have any role in the proceedings except to witness the proceedings and react to them, right? Is that whenever there's like something on one of your courtroom shows, like one of the attorneys comes out with this thing, boom, what happens? Sensation in the classroom, right? In the, in the, in the courtroom, right? Whoa. Everybody's murmuring. Yahweh calls upon the heavens to shudder, to shake at this thought. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. The enormity of this crime. Is that how you see your sin? Because it's not just Judah that's done this dark exchange. All sin is like this. All sin is doing that. 
Read Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, is been, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, Maybe not as well as Israel did, but we all knew God. They neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Sound familiar? That's Paul channeling Jeremiah. Speaking for Yahweh. Paul ends all of that description of the shocking nature of sin with, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why would we ever sin? Just this description of the appalling horror of sin should make us hate our sin and repent. How evil it is to exchange the glorious for the worthless. And not just evil, but dumb, right? Here's point number two. Sin is stupid. Sin is not just shocking, it's shockingly stupid. Look at verse 13. My people have committed two sins. Here are the charges now being laid out. There's two counts. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How dumb is that? You get the picture? There's a lot of artistry in the language here. Here are the charges. The first offense is to forsake the Lord, which is shocking in itself. He is like a spring of living water. So if you're a farmer and you find a spring on your property, are you happy or sad? Happy. You're overjoyed, right? Especially in a dry place like Israel. If you have water, you have life. But Judah has beep, beep, beep. He's backed the cement truck up to the spring. And he's filled it up. He stopped up the hole. He's maybe put a little arsenic in it so that nobody gets into, into that water over there. We don't need any of that water. He's dynamited the thing. I don't know how you can get rid of a spring. You tell me. Okay, those are just my ideas. Instead of how to figure figure out how to irrigate their whole field with it, they figured how to pretend the spring isn't there and block the water from getting to the crops. That's Israel. That's Judah. And here's their second offense. Instead of the spring, they've dug a big cistern to collect rainwater and have not even bothered or can't even figure out how to keep that from leaking. It's broken. Oh, I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig this cistern. Okay, it rained. Great. Goes out the next day. No water. And he's like, yeah, I like it. I like the broken cistern. I hated that spring.
That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's foolish. That's illogical. That's sin for you. Sin is stupid. Sin is absurd. Sin is a bad deal. And yet we keep choosing it. Roy, I've got some more questions for you. Tell me about that uh, motorcycle that you have in your garage. What, what is it again? 2000 Suzuki Intruder. How many cc's? 800 cc. Right? I got a trade for you, okay? I have a broken bicycle I'd like to trade you for. It only has one wheel, it doesn't have a chain. It's rusty, the steering is a little off, but it is handmade by yours truly. What do you say? Is it a deal? You'll keep it in my, oh, you keep yours, okay, yeah. Smart man. I didn't think you'd go for it. But every day we all do something more shockingly stupid than that. We sin against the Lord our God. I think one of the reasons why this passage is here in Holy Scripture is to cause us to rethink our daily proclivity to give in to temptation. Because I don't care what the sin is. It's stupid. Sin never pays off in the long run. False gods never fail to fail. They are unreliable. They are useless. They are worthless. They are broken cisterns when God is the spring of living water. You remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sin is fundamentally unsatisfying. But Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Have you come to Jesus for salvation and soul satisfaction? Do you continue to come to him and continue to drink from him? That is smart. Anything else is stupid. And it's shameful. That's point number three and last this morning. Sin is shameful. In verse 14, Jeremiah picks up steam and begins to lay into the people of Judah about the shamefulness of their sin and the shameful consequences of com- that are coming because of their sin. And he does it by laying on a bunch of rhetorical questions. You know, lawyer questions? Unanswerable questions? They are damning questions? And he also does it through laying out these damning images and piling them one on top of another. Listen to verse 14. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? No. Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Why'd that happen? Also, the men of Memphis and Topan have shaved the crown of your head. Those are key cities in Egypt. Judah's been defeated by them. The Lord has let them be shamed and treated as prisoners of war. Shaved heads. Why? Verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourselves? 
by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Yes, you have. Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shihor? Why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? They are tempted to form alliances with other nations, even the ones that just shamed them, to try to get Judah out of its trouble, instead of just repenting and trusting the Lord. Verse 19, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then. And realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. More. In verse 20, the prosecution begins to bring out into evidence statements made by the defendant. Verse 20. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I told you it wasn't pretty. Not only is the honeymoon over, but the bride is pimping herself out. She's not just adulterous, idolatry is spiritual adultery, but she is promiscuous. Now that could actually be somewhat literal, as well as metaphorical. The, the Canaanite gods were gods of fertility that included acts of sexual immorality in their worship. And Judah was tempted to worship many other gods. And so are we. What are the gods that our culture lays out before us? Sex is a major god in our culture. It's funny, the culture says that Christians are fixated on sexuality, and of course, some Christians are. But the culture is fixated on sexuality. Sexual satisfaction is seen as the greatest, most important thing, and you've got to have it how you want it. Do you know what we call that? Worship. But it's not just sex that we worship, we worship money, we worship sports. We worship politics. We worship family. We worship popularity. We worship... What are you tempted to worship? I often worship my stomach. I've recently fallen back into the old worship patterns of gluttony. And I told Heather Joy just last night, I need to get back to eating right, and I'm sorry. You know how I know I've fallen into gluttony? I feel bad, and I hide it. I hide how many servings I ate instead of bringing it out into the open. When I'm doing well, I'll report to Heather Joy, I only ate this and this. And she'll say, good job. But when I'm hiding it, I don't tell her. I don't stay accountable. I'm ashamed of it. Because sin is shameful. It's shocking and it's stupid and it's shameful. Verse 21. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Another ugly metaphor. How did you get twisted like that? 
Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. Here's how shameful this sin is. It puts a stain on Judah that they can't get rid of. All the lie and the bleach they can find, all the scrubbing and the scrubbing and the scrubbing, and it's still there like Lady Macbeth unendingly trying to wash the blood off of her hands. The stain is still there. Maybe other people can't see it. You ever watch one of those shows where they have the UV lights and then they show the... They show the thing, the CSI kind of thing. Oh, there it is. You can't get rid of it. He sees it. Deny it all you want. Verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. Ha! See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. I told you it wasn't pretty. Yahweh is pulling no punches. He says that Judah is like a camel or a donkey in heat. Reckless, unrestrained, frantic, dangerously, desperately running to copulate, running to false worship. Verse 25. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. That might be the saddest sentence here. Sin is shamefully addictive. Now here's a phrase I don't want you to miss. You you might have missed it in verse 23. Look back up at verse 23. Consider what you have done. Look at yourself. Now some of you in this room have tender consciences, and this chapter is really hard for you. Not just to hear these words from Jeremiah, but you just feel the shame cling to you. Hang on, stay with me. I have some good news to share with you in just a couple of minutes. Hold on. But the rest of us, we probably need to take a moment to take a good long look at ourselves. Look back over our lives, maybe just over the last week, and take a good hard look at ourselves and consider what we have done. And think for a minute about how shameful it is. Don't just say, nah, I'm good. Verse 26. As a thief is disgraced. There's another shame word. Disgraced when he is caught. So the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, You gave me birth. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, Oh, come and save us. How shameful is that? When things are going good, they're forsaking God. Turn their back to Him. When things are going bad, they cry out to Him for help once again. 
Verse 28. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. And here is the height of shameful shamelessness. Verse 29. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. You see what's happening? They're complaining about Yahweh. They think they can bring a countersuit against Yahweh because he's let them stay in trouble. Because he brought discipline to them. Verse 30, in vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? No. Why do my people say, we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Imagine a bride who forgets her wedding dress on her wedding day. Oh yeah, that. That's how they're treating the Lord. That's the kind of spiritual amnesia we're dealing with here. Verse 33, how skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you. Because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands on your heads. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. Do you see their defense? They have no defense. There is no Perry Mason who's going to get them out of this one. Perry would not have taken their case. Perry only defends innocent people. Judah is as guilty as the day is long. And their only defense, the only defense they can come up with is denying it all. I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. I have not sinned. Chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? So we've gone from honeymoon to impending divorce. Would not the land be completely defiled? There's another shame word. They weren't allowed to do that, by the way. Husbands were not allowed to basically lend out their wives by divorcing them and then remarrying them after the second husband was tired of them. That would be defiling. He says, but it's worse than that with you. You have lived as a prostitute with many lovers, not just one other husband. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? You're just going to walk back in as if nothing has happened? Verse 2, look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? Any place where you didn't do it? By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Ironically, it hasn't even worked. All that fertility worship, no fertility. All that worship of the storm God has brought no rain. But has that stopped you? 
Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk. But you do all the evil you can. In other words, you are guilty as charged. Now next time, we'll see what the Lord says about the possibility of repentance for Jerusalem. But right now, I just want to focus on this thing. Have you gotten a sense of your sin this morning? How shocking it is? Exchanging the glory of God for worthlessness? Has that helped you to see how appalling your sin is and hate it and repent of it all the more? Have you gotten a fresh sense of how stupid your sin is? Forsaking the satisfying spring of living water for the disappointing broken cistern of sin. Has that helped you to rethink the temptations lying before you? Have you gotten a new sense of how shameful your sin is? How not pretty it is? How very ugly? A stain you cannot remove from yourself. Whatever you do, whatever soap you apply, no matter how you scrubbed, stained. What if I were to tell you that there is a way to get that stain out? What if I were to tell you that there is forgiveness for your shocking, stupid, shameful sins? What if I were to tell you that this God, who has every reason to pour out the boiling pot of judgment on you, has instead put forward his own son to be scorched in your place? That's what this table represents. That's what we've been singing about this morning. The Savior's love for us. He took our sins and our sorrows. He nailed them to Calvary. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. Amen? Amen.